At this time, I would ask that we turn our attention to the Word of God. So if you have your copy of Scripture with you, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. If you want a good laugh, just go back and watch the trailers for basically any movie that was made before the year 2000. They just really hadn't figured out how to make a good trailer yet. In fact, almost all of them started with the phrase, in a world, right? And they were all cheesy and terrible, and they very rarely gave you a good depiction of what was actually going to take place in the movie. And so often, people would go to the theater and see something that was totally different than what they were anticipating. But modern trailers also have problems. They tend to give away far too much of the movie. But when you watch the movie, what you'll find yourself doing is you will say, oh, I remember that. I I was expecting that. I was anticipating that. I saw that coming because I saw it already like six times on YouTube. Last week, we heard from Isaiah chapter 40. And in some ways, that chapter is like a trailer for all of the chapters that are coming up this summer. It's like a summary or a table of contents. So just like a movie with a modern trailer, what you're going to experience is an occasional moment where you say, that looks very familiar. I've seen that before. That's going to happen many times because Isaiah 40 was a clear picture of what to expect through the summer. In fact, after preaching through Isaiah 40, I thought to myself, this is as good as it gets. Like, I don't know if there's a better text for me to preach through. And, you know, I was expecting Isaiah 40 to be the pinnacle of the summer. And then I got here to chapter 41, and I've changed my mind. God is going to continue to press farther and farther as he describes his own character and his purposes over the course of these chapters. And I would ask that just like you don't tune out in a movie just because you've seen the trailer, don't tune out if you see a few of those blips here in Isaiah 41 through 53. Because what will happen is far greater and more expansive and more beautiful and more amazing than anything that we've already seen. So let's go to the Lord now and join me in asking for his favor as I preach the word this morning. Our God in heaven, this time is for you. It is about you. But God, we thank you that you have given us your word so that it is also for us. So that you might serve us through your word. So Father God, we pray that this morning as I proclaim the word, that you would help me to do so with accuracy and with truth and with clarity and with wisdom. And I pray, God, that those who are here would hear these words, not only with physical ears, but with spiritual ears gifted by the Spirit. We pray that there would be a hunger that is developing in our hearts for your word, that we would not only experience this as a brief reading on Sundays, but it would be something that we meditate upon in our lives as we go. God, I ask that this would be a a time this morning of great transformation in our lives, that we would learn to trust in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isaiah chapter 41 is written as an inclusio. Now, that's just a fancy way that the smart guys refer to a linguistic sandwich. In this chapter, you have the top piece of bread, which speaks about idolatry, and then you have the bottom of the chapter, which also speaks about idolatry. But the best part of the sandwich is the meat of the chapter that you find in the middle. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to walk us through both the top and the bottom slice of bread by way of running commentary, and then we're going to set the majority of our time and our primary focus on that meat in the middle of the chapter. So please follow along as we examine the top slice of bread, starting in verse 1. Isaiah writes, Listen to me in silence, 
O coastlands, let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Uh, At the Bunch Home, when we have children who are disobedient or in trouble for some reason, Ashley and I will often call them to us, and we will say to them, present yourself. And what that means is they are required to stand there, and they are required to explain their actions. That is exactly what God is doing here. In fact, this is a very common formulation that God uses throughout the Scriptures. My favorite form of this is clear in Psalm 50. It's where God calls the people together, and He intentionally describes this like a courtroom displaying Himself as the judge. He says, basically, all rise, come gather into the court, come present yourself before me. And here, as an important note, you should know that he uses the word coastlands. This word is going to be used many, many times throughout the course of our summer. And what this means in Isaiah is not just speaking of those people who live at the beach. He's talking about everyone who lives in distant lands. This word is sometimes translated as islands. It is the same word that is used to speak of people who are the far reaches of the globe. So he's saying, everybody from everywhere, you come here, present yourselves to me. And now God is going to ask them a question. He says in verse 2, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Now scholars are divided about who he's talking about here. However, I believe that the likely answer is that he's speaking here about Cyrus the Great. You're going to see him show up prophetically many times in these coming chapters. But what you need to know right now is that God is declaring in no uncertain terms that he is the one who raised up this particular figure, this mighty individual, and he is the one who gives this guy power for war. Consider what this man does with the help of the Lord. It says... He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The world observed the great and dramatic rise and fall of kings and kingdoms all the time. And describing this, God says, I am at the center. I am the cause. I am the one doing these works. Do you not know that I am the one performing them? Although I am not the one carrying that sword, I am not that individual. I have empowered them and prepared them for this purpose. I am the king over kings. I'm the Lord over every ruler. But instead of seeing the Lord, how do the people respond? Verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and, and they come and everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Now in order to understand what's happening here, you have to know that chapter 41 is a continuation of the prophecy that was happening in chapter 40. Here we see a continuation of the trash talking of the idols that he was speaking about in that previous chapter. God is noting the insanity of how people respond when the world becomes dark and dangerous around them. Initially, the response is to just gather together. Get together with your neighbors. You can fight this. Get into your tribe and encourage one another. Just say everything is okay. Just announce that it will be okay, and then it will be okay. 
There are two false forms of strength that are highlighted here. The first is the idea of strength in numbers. Just all get together and we'll be safe. How many times have we heard that in the past year? Strength in numbers. We got this. We can do this. When the world seemed to be crumbling because of the COVID-19 virus, how many people turned to each other rather than turning to the Lord? The other false form of faith that he speaks about here, this other false form of strength, is to rely on personal power. Just be strong, people says. say. Dig deep. You've got it. It's in there somewhere. Buddha is credited with the quote, No one saves us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. This idea that your hope is only found in the depths of yourself is a lie from the pit of hell. God is mocking that idea. He is mocking the concept that you have in and of yourself some kind of innate power. And then he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say what else the people will do. When those things inevitably fail, they turn to an idol to save them. Verse 7, he says, The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil saying basically these craftsmen encourage one another and point one another to make more idols, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. God is highlighting here the skillful work that is put into propping up idols. Look, you nailed it to that wall really well. It's not going anywhere. Nothing can shake this God of mine because I put it there with strong nails. God is highlighting the insanity that you have put strength into an item so that it can give strength to you. How can you create a thing that will deliver you? This is how God concludes the first part of the inclusio. This is how he concludes the top part of the sandwich. But let's jump now down to the bottom piece of bread and see how God continues to dismantle these idols. He says, verse 21, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Once again, we see this courtroom setting. God is making a challenge to the nations who worship these false gods. He is demanding that they make their case and exhibit their proof on the record. In particular, God is going to challenge their knowledge of the future. Verse 22, let them, uh, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. What's going to happen, guys? Obviously, they can't, but God says, okay, okay, listen, if that's too hard, just tell us what happened in the past. At least accurately describe history to us. Tell us the former things, he says. What are they? So that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare the things to come. At least maybe we'll know the future by way of learning the past. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. If you're really a god, you can know the future. But clearly, these are not gods. These idols fail the knowledge test. And then God goes further by challenging their power. He says, do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. He says, look, just do something. Just do anything. Clearly, if you're a god, you can do... I don't care if it's good. I don't care if it's bad. Just do something so that people will know that they should be terrified of you but they're unable. Behold, you are nothing, God says, verse 24, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And now God is going to claim responsibility for all that's taking place. It isn't an idol who's doing this. It's not a false God that can save them from this. Verse 25, 
I stirred up one from the north, and he has come, from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, and the potter as the potter treads clay. So imagine like you have a mortar and pestle, and you're grinding up some kind of herbs. He says that's what this king is going to do to people in front of him. Now, this king is different from the one that was mentioned previously. Instead of coming from the east, it says this one has come from the north. Most scholars agree this is probably talking about Nebuchadnezzar. God is reminding Israel that the coming devastation is coming from his hand and that God has not lost control. He has orchestrated this from the beginning. Verse 26, he says, Who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, He is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words, speaking of idols. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. In other words, he is saying, I am the one who caused Nebuchadnezzar to come. I am the one who foretold that it would happen. I am the one who not only expressed that this would take place, but I also gave you good news that you will survive what is about to happen. But what about the idols? What have they done? God concludes, but when I look, there's no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion." Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So here we conclude the bottom slice of bread. We see that idolatry is futile. There is no value in looking to anything or anyone but God Himself for our strength. But what I would like to do before moving on is I simply want to ask three questions in succession that will help us understand how these two sections, how these slices of bread fit together with the meat how these operate in relation to what we are about to see in the middle. First, when distress or disorder or disaster or difficulty strikes in your life, what is your immediate response? What is your first course of action? Do you look to your own intelligence or to your own wisdom? Do you go to those around you? Do you seek for a community? What is your first response? Do you go to an idol? Second, When trials persist, how do you search for help? When it's just ongoing and unrelenting, what do you do in order for assistance? And thirdly, when trials hit everyone around you at the same time, how do you attempt to give strength to others? Maybe you look for a crowd to gather around yourself, or maybe you dig for inner strength, or maybe you go to a created thing for hope. Maybe you think that you can be omniscient, so you study your way through the problem. You just want to know everything that you can possibly know, thinking that you, like God, can know all things, and therefore you can be safe. Or maybe you think that you can be omnipotent and all-powerful, so you look for created things to give you power, things like the gift of God that He has given us in science or medicine or doctors. Maybe you seek distraction as long as possible by just amusing yourself to death and ignoring all of the problems around you. Here in Isaiah 41, God is giving His people the answer for where to go when life is hard. And this is good news because He has not left this to our imagination or our own ability. He says there is a place for you to go because life will get difficult. We are promised by Jesus Himself, you in this life will have troubles. It's coming if it's not already here. Where do we go? 
He is declaring in the clearest possible terms that there is an answer for us when the world around us crumbles. So look now to the meat of this chapter, starting in verse 8. He says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. One of the most important things to get right when you are studying any portion of Scripture, especially prophecy, is to understand to whom God is speaking. God explains this in multiple ways. He is, he is announcing that this is for a particular people. It is to those who are the chosen people of God, those who are the offspring of Abraham. But to the people of Israel, this probably seemed like a contradiction in terms, what God says next. Strangely, he explains that these people that God calls, he, come, he calls not from an isolated place just exclusively in the Middle East. He says that they are gathered from the farthest reaches of the earth. Now, how do we explain this? Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, Jesus is telling them two things. First, he is noting that they are not truly the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And secondly, that God can make anybody that He wants or anything that He wants a spiritual child if He chooses to do so, which we see He does in the epistles. For example, Galatians chapter 3 verse 9 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or Galatians 3 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I think there are some people in the room here who are biologically, genealogically, the bloodline of Abraham, perhaps. You are from his genealogical tree. But ultimately, that does not matter in terms of the people of God. He says that not all people who are born physically into Judaism, into the Jewish line, are actually going to be saved, who are actually children of Abraham. But everyone, everyone who trusts in Christ Whatever your bloodline is, every single person who has believed in him becomes a child of the promise, a child of Abraham. So these promises that we are looking for in verse 10, this promise is being declared to you if you are in Christ. Verse 10 says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, notice here that there are two commands that are given. The Lord demands that His people be fearless, fear not, and He demands that we are not dismayed. This could be easily translated in the way that Paul writes in Philippians 4, do not be anxious. It's the idea of an ongoing internal struggle with fear in your soul. Fear and anxiety are supposed to be foreign to the Christian life. If they are present in your life, they should be immediately apprehended and expelled, but how do we do this? How is that even possible for us to control? Notice two things about this command. First is a general principle that is always true of every command of the Lord, that God's commands are good for you. He is telling you things to do because He loves you and because He wants what is good for you. God does not ask you to do anything except that which is for your ultimate good. 
Whatever he demands, it is for your benefit. In this case, it's evident that God's command is good. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Let's be real. We have all sinned with fear, and we have all sinned by way of anxiety. And if we're honest, we know that these sins ruin our lives. They are corrosive to us. Fear and anxiety leave no corner of our existence untouched. When you are fearful or when you are filled with anxiety, they do much damage. They steal your joy. They dampen your delight in the Lord. They hinder your earthly relationships. They cloud your mind. They even disrupt your physical health. Fear and anxiety are bad for you. I think we all know this, but God gives us a good command. He says, don't do that. Don't be that way. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Don't be anxious. But he doesn't just tell you to do it. He actually tells you how to do it. He gives you the tools to accomplish this otherwise impossible task. He says, there are five reasons why you must not fear. Five reasons why you must not be dismayed. Pay attention. Mark this in your Bible if you have it. Circle or underline or highlight or whatever you need to do to focus in on these five truths because you need these things in your life, and so do I. Number one, he says, because I am with you. There is no place that God will send you alone. The first time that God gave this command, do not fear, the first time we see that in the Bible is when he says to Abraham, go. And he says, don't be afraid, Abraham, because I will be with you, and I will be your shield. Psalm 23, verse 3, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? Because you are with me. David could stand before Goliath without fear. Why? Because he knew that God was there, and the battle belongs to the Lord. Look, it might look like I'm outnumbered, but there... Let's face it, Goliath, the Lord is with me. We could go on forever giving examples, but the point stands. You are always going to cower in the face of every enemy that you perceive to be bigger than yourself unless you realize that an infinitely greater God is standing right beside you. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Reason number two, he says, I am your God. Not just that I am God, I am your God. God is not just some impersonal force. He is a good father, zealously watching over his children. And this is a stunning statement. Look, it's one thing for God to say, look, you are my people. I made you, you belong to me, I called you out, you're mine. Like, that's an amazing statement, should blow your mind. But think of what it says. I am your God. I am your God. God states, I am your God, and it reminds us of his unfading dedication to those that he loves. So do not fear, and do not be dismayed, for he is your God. Reason three, he says, I will strengthen you. The weakest of all threads becomes mighty when it is woven into a chain. If the chain doesn't break, neither will the thread. Like that, the most feeble of believers is made strong when empowered by the Lord, Do not fear. He will give you strength. Reason four, he says, I will help you. Last year at this time, I was at Mount Rushmore with my family. And uh, 
we discovered that there was this thing that we could do with our kids to get them sworn in as honorary junior rangers if we took them all the way up to the end and we found a bunch of things and then we came all the way back. And at this time, they had shut down the short path to get there. So in order to get to the end lookout to see Mount Rushmore up close, you actually had to travel pretty far and there are lots and lots of steps and lots of lots of walking. And we had five kids and a dog, the youngest of our children being three months old at the time. There was no possible way to take a stroller up this thing. And so there are hundreds of steps. And so we made it all the way there. We talked to some rangers on the way. And then as we were discussing at the top with one of the rangers, they said, oh, but if you're going to do that, you have about 18 minutes to get back to the bottom in order to actually get that accomplished. You, you, ha you have to make it back pretty quickly because otherwise they're going to miss it. And my son Asaph was most excited about this. And so we said, you know what? We're going to do it. We're going to get down there. But my son Mordecai, he had climbed maybe 400 steps getting up there, and he was done. Now, he's four years old now, but he's, he was three then. And ever since he was born, he was quite rounded at all the angles. And he, I've always called him my, my little mashed potato. Uh, he, he, he was struggling just to breathe at that point. And so he wanted to take his pine cone back down to the bottom, but there was no way he was going to make it. So he carried his pine cone, but I carried him. So Ashley's got the baby, Asaph has the dog, and I've got Mordecai, and we are running down those steps as fast as we can go, passing every other tourist on the way, zooming down that hill to get back to the bottom. And by God's grace, we made it. We got them sworn in. They got their badges. Praise God. Whew. But... My point being, Kai could have never made it on his own. It was absolutely impossible. He knew he couldn't make it. And I said, I'll help you. I will help you. Look, you can carry that thing because I'm going to carry you. You better believe that if I was carrying him, we were going to make it. God promises people, I will help you. I will help you. I will help you. Does that not comfort you? This is a promise available to you if you are in Christ. Help is only as good and valuable as the person who offers it. Look, I could help him climb down the mountain, but if any of you asked me, I would have died. There is no way I could have helped you. But God has all strength. He has all power. He has all control. And he says, I, the God of the universe, will help you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. And he give, gives you another reason. He says, because I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Look, your spiritual legs are going to grow tired. They might be tired right now. Maybe you, like Peter, are walking on the water and you see the waves around you and you are struggling not to drown right now. But what did Jesus do? He reached out his hand. I, and I'm assuming it's his right hand, but it could be wrong. But he reaches down with his hand and he grabs Peter and he pulls him up. He is the one who gave him strength with his righteous right hand. And God says, my promise for you is that in your weakness, in your failures, in your temptations, in your sin, you are not capable. But I will help you by upholding you with my righteous right hand. Christian, you need these promises. You need to bank on these promises. You need to have these words in your back pocket so that you can have them ready at a moment's notice. Now, perhaps you're not experiencing difficulties now. Thank God we have had a season of peace and joy for the most part in, in this time, in this church. 
Maybe you're not feeling any struggles right now. Perhaps nothing is in front of you that causes you fear. But if that's the case now, just wait a few days or weeks or years. They will come. And when they do, cling to dear life for these promises of Isaiah 41. As you will see, the promise of God that is, about, that is being made here is it is one of the most precious guarantees that you could ever possess. How could it be any better that God himself says he is with us, he will help us. Treasure these words. Store them in your heart. If you have kids, one of the best things to do, go home, look up Seeds Family Worship, listen to their music at home. It's just Bible verses put to music, but it's actually, it's actually quality, unlike some of the things that are out there. And it's good music, and it's really good for your soul. And I have found myself humming and singing and thinking this verse many times because I memorized that song I played for my kids. So adults, if you don't have kids in your home, Look up Seeds Family Worship and listen to it for yourself. It is good for your soul. Hide these words in your heart so that at a moment's notice, they will be there with you. When you wake up in the morning to an email that says that one of your family members has died, you need these words with you. When you lay on your bed and you are struggling to sleep because you are in turmoil in your soul because of your wayward children, you need these words Roll these promises over in your mind so that when you are standing in front of a person and you are terrified to share the gospel with them, you need to know that God is with you and he will help you. But wait, we haven't even heard the best part yet. God continues with his promises to his people. What I'm going to do is just briefly summarize for the sake of time two sections here. In verses 11 down through 13, God is going to tell Israel that their national enemies that are contending with them, they're sure, they're going to come in, they're going to fight you. But eventually, they're going to disappear. They're going to be gone. These empires that look so powerful that they're going to destroy you, eventually they will fade away, but you will continue. In verses 17 through 20, God describes his comfort over his people like water in a dry land. I'm going to be like refreshing water to you. And he says, I'm going to make you like trees in a desert where nothing grows. I will give you stability. I will give you good roots. I encourage you to read those sections on your own and meditate upon them this week. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to leave you with this section from verses 14 through 16, which says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Here, God is referring to the nation of Israel as worms. Now, in Hebrew, it does not differentiate between worms and slugs and maggots. This is the word that is used for anything that is a slimy creature who lives and eats off of dead things. So imagine this. The God of the universe is attempting to comfort the people of Israel, and he says to them, you're just a maggot. You maggots. You need to know something. Then he uses this diminutive term. In, in English, it doesn't come through in your Bibles very well. He says, you men of Israel. This, this word men here is a diminutive, meaning it's like you little people, you tiny men, you small ones. He says, I am the one who helps you. Do not dare think that this is all coming from you. Do not think that you are capable in and of yourself. You are just worms. But I think you're going to love the imagery that God is using here. In verse 15, he says, of these maggots, of these worms, he says, Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. 
You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. Now, that might not sound like a huge thing to you, but in those days, a threshing sledge was the cutting-edge technology of the discovered tech tree. This was as far as society had advanced. A thresher is where you have these metal teeth, like claws, that will come down, and they will chomp on these different grains that you throw in so that all of the bad stuff goes away and all of the good stuff remains. And these things look like the jaws of an animal. He says, you little maggots, you little worms, I'm going to make you like a giant thresher, big enough and powerful enough and strong enough that you could go to a mountain and chew it to nothingness. I am going to give you strength. I am going to give you power. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 17, 20, when he says, truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Why? Because you're so strong Because you're so powerful? No, it's because if you are leaning on the God who has all power, then he can work his power through you. In neither of these cases does God say that the power is from us, nor does he say that it is for us. It is God working through us as we trust in him to produce his purposes. And what is the result? He says, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. There's an old hymn. I love this hymn. It says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? This promise should be shocking to us because the God of the universe has graciously looked down and he has seen something as lowly and insignificant as a maggot and he says, I will help you, even you. But I want you to see clearly how he does this. Psalm 22 is one of the clearest examples that we have in the entire book of Psalms of what we call a messianic psalm. It is pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus was quoting when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where we get the prophecies about the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. We know that what's going on there is a prophetic look at the Savior. And so we know that it is a depiction of Christ on the cross when we read Psalm 22, 6, which says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Those words are about Jesus. He says, I am a worm. Do you understand what this is saying to you? He says that the God of the universe, the King of heaven himself, not only came to live among you, but to to become like a maggot for you. He did so in order to save you. He became the most despised and rejected person imaginable. He became a worm, a maggot, so that he might say to you, I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That comes to us because Jesus himself was made like the worst of us so that he might save the least of us. If you are not yet a Christian, you need to know these words, but you need to know that they are not yet for you. If you are not a Christian, you cannot hold close to these promises, but they can be your promises. If you are not yet in Christ, 
then you have every reason to live in constant fear. Because let's face it, if, if you're not in Christ, then the best part of your eternity is right now. And if you were to die at this moment, all you have to look forward to is an eternity in judgment and the wrath of God. Even the little things that you loved in this life, you will look back on them with contempt and hatred because you will see that all they did was lead you in comfort and amusement directly to hell. Do not let that be you. We want these promises for you. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Trust in this Son of God who came to be a worm on that cross, to be the lowest of the low so that he might die for sinners like you and me and give us his righteousness and believe that he raised from the dead, that he lives today to be your Lord and Savior. If you want to know more about that, I want to talk to you about that. I would love nothing more than to speak with you about the goodness of God that we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those who do know him, praise God that we have a promise like this, that our God loves us to tell us that he will be with us and that he will help us and that he will uphold us. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this message, for this promise that you have given us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this kind of strength and courage, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And God, I do pray for anyone in the room that doesn't know you in a saving way. May today be their day of salvation. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, who became a maggot and a worm for us. Amen.